Our DT Systems, the Wrap 1400 or 1400 if you like doing it that way, but it's the Wrap 1400. It's a collar that is super reliable, ready to rock, and it's super handy because you can hold it in your hand while you're shooting your shotgun during duck season. So it's a cool unit for you and your dog come hunting season so that you've got control over any situation. Anything the dog throws at you during the hunt is right there, easy and accessible. Bingo, bango, bongo. If you don't want that one, check out the H. 201820. It's the DT Systems and it's dog tested, dog tough. Hashtag man's best kennel. It's Gunner Kennels, baby. It's a kit. We had Addison on the, the podcast, a phenomenal dude, always innovating our industry. And one of the things that he brought up is it's a kit. It's not just the kennel itself. You've got the fan 2.0 for your summer, right? Like it's hot out. We got to keep that dog cool. In wintertime, you got the all weather kit. Keeps that poor body temperature in there so the dog doesn't have to work as hard to stay warm. They also have the magnetic door accessory that keeps that body temperature in there. And then the straps. Everybody thinks like, oh, I'll just go to Home Depot and get the cheapo straps. Well, listen, they developed these straps so that basically you can lift a VW bug with the two straps. So if you were to get in a car accident on the way to the duck blind or the training grounds, that dog is going to be beyond strapped and stay safe. Check it out. Gunner Kennels, baby. Slide in the DMs. We'll hook you up. Force fetch. What is it? It's super intimidating to so many people, yet it's not that difficult. I built a step-by-step process that helps you understand it, you and your dog can be successful in it, and it takes the intimidation away of the process so that you and your dog can get to your goals. That's what it's built for. Let me teach you how I do it so that you and your dog can do it. Different breeds, different personalities, problem solving, and more. Check it out. Links in the description. The Force Fetch Course. Baby. What's going on, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles. This is episode 58. Thank you all for tuning in. Real quick, we've got to thank our sponsors, Yukonuba Sporting Dog, fueling up the dogs of Lone D, baby. The food that fuels us. We've got Puppy Blend for all the dogs under two years old. We've switched them over, and I'm really pleased with that. Um, Dr. Spoo on one of our previous episodes and one of our most popular, I might add, we talked about different formulas for different stages of life. So for the young dogs, they're getting the puppy formula. The adult dogs are either getting the 30-20 blend, this performance sporting dog blend, or they're getting the adult blend. So I fine tune it per dog, which is what you should do. Not everybody should eat keto or paleo or I don't know what they call it, carb-free, but there's a different diet for humans. There's a different diet for dogs. Let's get serious here. I don't know about that stuff. I just eat what I got to eat. But these dogs are premium athletes. Let's fuel them the proper way. Yukonuba, baby. Next up, Gunner Kennels. This is what old Quinn rides around in. She gets the luxury. All my old dogs had those junky plastic crates and in the event of an error in my driving or someone else i would really wouldn't trust that those crates would hold up 
And I'm super thankful that everyone at Gunner Kennels put time, energy, and passion behind creating something this safe for over-the-road transportation for your dog. If you're interested in learning more about Gunner Kennels, you can check out their website or shoot us a DM. Be happy to help you get into one. Next up, Waypoint Outdoor Collective. This is the group of folks that help host our podcast and keep us connected with you. Check them out at Waypoint Outdoor Collective. Also, Traeger Grills. Smoke them if you got them, baby. We all know that Kevin and I do like to eat meat. We may not be keto or paleo or whatever else that junk is, but we like to eat, baby. So we got very excited when we started working with Traeger Grills and all the foods that have been prepared have been delightful. So check them out, Traeger Grills. Thank you for being a part of our show. Now, our new sponsor, which I'm very excited about. And if you've been following along our whole journey from the time Lone Duck started, I have been a user, believer, supporter, and dealer for dog trip e-collars. And at SHOT Show 2020, baby, Dogtra and I started building a more in-depth relationship, and we ended up working a deal out where they want to support our podcast and talk to you guys. So thank you to Dogtra. I truly believe in this product. You know, they are in my back pocket every single day doing my job, helping me be a trainer. And every single dog that goes home gets a dog for product. I believe in it. So I'm super excited about this partnership. And I also am excited to introduce our next guest. Pete Fisher is a retriever trainer, gun dog trainer, and he works for dog for now. He's been there for 10 years. He was a dog trainer for 30 years. Exceptional human being, fun to talk to. I'm so glad he's on our our podcast tonight. So everyone, I'd like you to uh, meet Pete Fisher from Dogtra. Pete, do me a favor. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself. Well, first, Bob, thanks for uh, having me on. And, uh, you know, thanks for the relationship with your podcast and with the Dogtra company. And, you know, just to give you the the listeners a little bit of an idea, uh, just who in the hell this guy is that you have on tonight, I guess might be the best way to, to put it is, um, I worked for the doctor company, Bob, and uh, doctor makes remote training callers, e-callers. You know, in this day and age, Bob, we don't call them shock callers anymore. But um, one of the uh, things that maybe separates uh, what I do for the company compared to a lot of the other companies is I work for the company and do a lot of different things. But I've got a retriever training background. And so I had a fairly large retriever training kennel up here in uh, central Minnesota that I started on my own. And the uh, name of the, the business was Fisher's Kennels and Hunt Club. And primarily what I did, Bob, was train dogs for other people. They brought them, left them at our facility, and give you a bit of an idea how big uh, in 30 years uh, the business had grown. Um, at its full capacity, we could handle anywhere from 45 to 50 dogs. So obviously it wasn't just me uh, doing the, uh, the training anymore. I had people working for me. And I actually ended up selling the business to a guy that was working part-time for me. A lot of people say, well, why didn't the full-time guy buy it from me? And I always tell them that full-time guy knew too much about the business. And you can kind of relate to that. It's a, it's a labor of love. There's a lot of, a lot of hours you put into it, Bob. You're, you're very much aware of that. So uh, after 30 years, I had an opportunity to sell the business and our home and some of the property. Uh, we had 360 acres up here in central Minnesota. 
and I sold uh, 40 acres off with the business, the tech ponds, and the home. And um, I've sold some of the other property off to some other individuals that were actually old customers of mine and, and built homes back here. And I still have 120 acres here that, that I live on and built a new home, Bob. And I, I went to work for the dog truck company as a private contractor um, uh, 10 years ago now. So uh, that's what I do. Um, kind of my, my history is uh, I was a dog trainer and uh, trained some of it, everything, so to speak but really focused on retriever training and people left them with us. We had a breeding program where we had uh, stud dogs that were master hunter titled. And, and my, my uh, dog that really I would hang my hat on was a, a dog by the name of Rex who was a master hunter. And, and he got bred a lot and really fed the whole system uh, when I had the business. And, uh, and now I do some of everything for the, for the dog truck company. Um, any major trade show you might, uh, especially outdoor related trade show I'm at, work in a booth. Uh, I got introduced here a while back by our rep group and they said, Pete's like the Swiss army knife for dog trap. I don't know if that's good or not, but um, <laughs> that's what I do. And, uh, and then anytime it seems like there's uh, podcasts or interviews to be done, uh, that falls in my wheelhouse uh, and I don't mind doing them either. So anyway, that's a bit of history on myself. Very cool. Well, I'll give everybody, I started to talk about it to introduce Pete to Kevin and Kevin's like, whoa, 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 stop. This will be good. Um, I, over the phone, was introduced to Pete probably close to eight years ago, seven years ago, yep. when Lone Duck was doing its online sales and dealership programs with other companies. And a friend of mine is a, a professional trainer, and and I was using Dogger at the time. And he's like, man, you got to call Pete. He'll get you set up. You can sell Dogtra. I'm like, man, boy, that would be excellent. So I'm sitting in my 2001 silver PT Cruiser, <laughs> which I didn't personally own. Okay. This was a... And that baby had some zip, I worked though. for a... Oh, that thing was disgusting. <laughs> not in a, not, you know how that, you know, it's not cool. It was a piece of junk. So I was selling oil and auto supplies at the time. And I would go around to garages and dealerships and sell them light bulbs to 250 gallons of oil. And I'm sitting in my PT Cruiser and I'm nervous to make this phone call. It's kind of like a sales call for me. Like, you know, I, I got a really wow this gentleman Pete and you know tell him about Lone Duck and what we're doing and I call him up and he's like it probably went as simple as like oh yeah it sounds great you can be a dealer <laughs> but but from then on he and I built a really nice relationship and friendship and finally got to meet back in 2015 I think maybe 2016 at the master national in South Carolina. Yes. Where again, doctor kind of went out on a limb because of Pete and I was able to sell products at the event for Dogtra and got right. to meet him in person. And we had a lot of fun, a lot of in common and uh, our friendship has grown since then. So from slinging oil down the streets of Syracuse, New York, <laughs> yeah to master national it's, it's been a ride and i, I saw he was yeah. at shot show this year and uh he introduced me to one of my idols i had a little boy man crush on mike ritlin 
Okay, yeah, he's a good dude, isn't he? He is, man. I listen to his podcast all the time. It's called the yeah. Mic Drop or Mic Drop. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, yeah, he's just a he's a great dog trainer. It gets a little uh, colorful actually. at times, doesn't it? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. He's an yeah. ex Navy SEAL, and he trains yeah. all sorts of dogs: police dogs, detection dogs, uh, special forces dogs. And, uh, so he's very knowledgeable on that end as well as entertaining yep. and whatever. And so a good guy. I got and a good guy. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's how I met Pete and, and our friendship developed. So I'm excited to have him on our show and talk about a lot of things. We're also going to talk about, you know, some product too. So what I would like to dig into Pete is how did you get into dog training? You know, I, I, uh, Graduated from high school, Bob, uh, in the in the mid to late seventies, and you know back then you you know they didn't prepare you for your your future uh, work as as nearly as well as they do nowadays. And so I graduated from high school. And I went to work and did construction work, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, but uh, it it was the only thing that I I could do, I guess. So I did it. And uh, along the line, I uh, bought my first retriever and uh, went out and, and uh, introduced myself to a guy by the name of Lawrence Martins, also known as Lorny Martins. And if you look up that name, he's in the Retriever Trainers Hall of Fame. And I got to know Lorny and spent some time with him. And I actually worked for him for one summer over at his kennel. And um, for the listeners, this is kind of interesting. If, if you go back and look at old uh, retriever pedigrees, almost every uh, Labrador Retriever field trial breeding goes back to a dog by the name of River Oaks Corky. Have you heard of that dog, Bob? Yes. And if you look at River Oaks Corky's sire, it's a field champion by the name of Martin's Mr. Nifty. And that's Lorne Martin's uh, field champion from back in the 50s, was the sire of uh, River Oaks Corky. So Lorne was quite well known. He was a, a good old guy, and I worked for him um, for one summer and into a fall. And then when all the hunting dogs went home, uh, obviously there wasn't a lot to do. So uh, I got hired at a local veterinary clinic, Bob. And that was back before you went. They sent you off to school to become a vet tech. And uh, this veterinary clinic trained me to be a vet tech on on the site and on job. And and it was really an interesting job. Gosh, Bob, I think back to uh, those days and, and, um, you know, just how valuable all that uh, learning all the, the different things that I did uh, for the veterinary clinic. It was the Wake Park Veterinary Hospital in, in central Minnesota here. And I worked for them for two and a half or three years. And then I started training some dogs on my own. And then I worked for uh, uh, the guys over at Deltone Kennels, Phil and Tommy Berger, and worked for them for one summer. And then I started on my own. And uh, I was always pretty mechanically inclined. And I built my own kennels and welded them and strung the uh, – the uh but uh just scrap chain link and hung it on it and that's how i started out and started out with five kennels and i had enough money i built five more and five more and then we bought uh went from 10 acres to 360 acres and just kept growing the business and but really my claim to fame bob is is uh i train dogs for other people is what i did for 30 years and that's uh i liked what i do uh did for 30 years but anybody that tells you that if you do something pretty much 365 days a year, and that's the way this goes when you have your own facility, uh, you you suffer some burnout, to say the least. So I like what I did for 30 years, and I like what I do now for the past 10 years. Very good. Did you run hunt tests back in the day? 
uh, you know, back when in the early days, Bob, when I started out, there was only field trials, and uh, right. And I dabbled in that a little bit just to find out that I wasn't really interested in that. And lo and behold, this is a kind of an interesting story, Bob. Uh, the first group that came out that did hunt tests, uh, you're familiar with the North American Hunting Retriever Association called NARA? Absolutely. Yeah, and that was the, the original hunt test organization. And I remember reading an article written by Jerome Robinson, and I think he wrote for uh, Sports Afield. And I remember he interviewed this dog guy. That wrote books, a guy by the name of Richard Walters. Does that ring a bell? Yep. So gun dog, game dog, the history of the Labrador Retriever. Richard and a group of individuals started this new hunt test program, uh, and they eventually named it NARA, North American Hunting Retriever Association. I saw that article, and I wrote Richard Walters a letter. You know, this is many years before email, Bob, okay? And so I wrote (laughs) him a letter and expressed my interest, and he responded. And we talked on the phone, and we eventually started a hunting retriever club up here called the Minnesota Hunting Retriever Association. And um, I got to know uh, Richard, and he actually stayed at my house um, over the years. I stayed at his house when I judged the NARA National. Um, he had a place down in Richmond. And um, so that's how I got involved with hunt tests. And then eventually what happened, Bob, is the UKC started a program the AKC, we, we were real close to having a, a program that was affiliated with the American Kennel Club. Those two groups split, NARA and AKC, and consequently, we ended up with three groups, uh, UKC, uh, the HRC group, the AKC hunt test program, and NARA. And, and what happened with NARA is they just couldn't survive on the same level of those big organizations, so they became the smallest. And uh, eventually, our group died out, out up here, and pretty much everybody runs the AKC hunt tests up in our neck of the woods here that I think, I don't even know if there's a NARA club left here in, in Minnesota. Um, but, uh, that's kind of how I got started in the hunt test world. And I was a regional, uh, guy for NARA and I judged the national. So I was on the, uh, on the very ground floor, so to speak, as, as hunt test started out, I, uh, got to know the original, uh, president of NARA, Ned Spear. I don't know if he's around anymore. A guy by the name of Jack Jagoda ran it for years. I knew Jack and obviously knew Richard and, um, and Richard is long gone, but um, that—that's how I got started in hunt tests, and was on, like I said, on the very ground floor, so to speak. That's very cool. So everybody who's listening to this, he just mentioned a name that maybe you would be familiar with, uh, Jack Jagoda. We had his sister yeah. on. Tr- we had Trish on our podcast probably four or five months ago, and mm-hmm. Jack and Trish were also pivotal in the hunt test game when it switched. So basically all throughout America in the, I don't know, truthfully, but I would say twenties, thirties, forties, fifties, sixties was only field trial. So first, second, third, fourth place. Yep. Win or lose. And this group of, you know, people came together and said, you know, we like winning and losing, but what about the average hunter who, yes, wants to pass who wants a dog that is capable of a a standard we hold a high standard but it's capable of the standard and you pass or fail instead of a competition where it's cutthroat and so that's where nara came in so i didn't know that you were involved real early on like that that's neat oh yeah yeah i had the first master hunting retriever that's uh, the title with nara is mhr master hunting retriever and i had a chesapeake bay retriever 
that was the first master hunting retriever uh, in the state of Minnesota. And so, yeah, I was very involved with, with getting that up and running. And in all three groups were very, um, you know, they all had their own direction they wanted uh, to go. And, and the UKC was, um, uh, got tied up with a trainer down in Louisiana by the name of Omar Driscoll. And, and he was, uh, he took that and ran with it. And you, you know how big the HRC stuff has gone. Obviously, you know how big the AKC stuff has gone. Nara is still, uh, you know, still near and dear to me. I just talked to some of those guys at Pheasant Fest uh, here in, in Minneapolis. Some of the guys were there. And uh, we're actually uh, putting together, Dogtra's putting together a small sponsorship program with Nara. Um, and, uh, but that was, that was really the, the grassroots. Uh, yeah, it was the, the early days of it. I'm going to say it was in the 80s, early 80s, Bob, is when that all started up. Um, sure. because I judged the invitational and they used to have different sponsors of it. I can't, I think Elpo, the dog food company was maybe the sponsor of it the year I did it. Um, but that would have been in about, uh, I judged it probably in about 89 or 90, Bob, somewhere in that, that time frame. Um, Very but anyway, yeah, it was, uh, that's what started the, the whole hunt test program was, was NARA and, uh, eventually uh, turned into AKC and UKC and, Although all those groups were all together at one time trying to hammer this thing out, and they all three went separate ways. Sure. So my first club, retriever club I ever joined, was an, it was and is a NARA club in New York. And, you know, I still hold a membership there and will yep. participate in training days here and there. And um, I, I really I'll bet, enjoy... I'll bet, Bob, if you rattled off some of the old-timers from that club, I'll bet I'd remember their names. There was a guy, was there a guy up there by the name of Joe Letta or? Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> I, I would see these guys at all the national events um, uh, because I ran them and judged them. And, and yeah, yeah. just And it really is fun to, to run into these people years and years later. Um, unfortunately, yeah. some of them aren't around anymore. But yeah, it was, it's, it's, uh, it's a good group. All of them are good groups and they all serve a purpose, you know, basically getting the, the average guy or gal out to train their dog more and spend time with it. So you got a better dog out in the field come the fall. Absolutely. So again, for the listeners and, and Pete, you know, we're huge proponents of hunt tests and a lot of people come into this getting a dog and wanting to learn how to train it. Oh, I don't need fancy ribbons, but the hunt test game is something to do and have goals for your dog outside of hunting yep. season. So hunting season is, you know, a uh, uh, fifth of your year, well, what do you do the rest of the time? You train, right. you prepare, you run tests, you have yep. fun, you meet new friends, and you improve yourself and your dog. And um, yeah. I would be a huge advocate for NARA. And I wish, on some respects, I wish it was bigger than it is, but I also think there's yep. a nostalgia behind it to where yeah. it's just a tight-knit group of dog guys and gals. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, the other part that goes with that, Bob, you know, aside from <clears throat> giving individuals a, a, another avenue to train their dog uh, and, and a goal to work for is, is the breeding part of it. You know, I always tell people that, you know, they'd see my dog, uh, let's say this Rex dog or my current dog, Trey, who are uh, master hunters. So they got the little MH, AKC, MH title behind their names. And people say, oh, yeah, my dog can't do any of that stuff, but God, he's a great hunting dog. And I said, you know, most of those dogs out there that you're going to find in a breeding program that haven't haven't run a field trial or hunt test, they have what I what I call a barroom reputation. 
And, um, and, and so I always tell people, you know, when was the last time you were sitting at a bar after a hunt and had a beer or two and some guy walks in and says, you know, you got to see my dog. It's really a piece of shit. You know what I mean? Everybody's <laughs> dog is always going to be better. That, and when you've got the title, um, my dog's also a good hunting dog, but guess what? He has the title. He's shown that he can do the work under judgment and had to pass the standard. And so that's the other part of the, 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 the hunt test program is that little title that goes behind their name. It shows that that dog has more than just what's called a barroom reputation. Again, there's a hell of a lot of hunting dogs out there that are phenomenal hunting dogs, Bob, that'll never run a hunt test in their life and never get a title. Uh, but right. for the people that want to uh, have a breeding program where they can can show that the, the breeding is not only there because of the titles, but also the work the dog can perform. So that's that's the other thing that I think is is a very big part of it. Oh, it's so valuable. Mm-hmm. I tell I, the the way I put it is you're stacking the deck in your favor. If you're buying a, a puppy out of a pedigree where the parents have been hunt tested and field trialed, they've proven it, like you said, in a judged standard that they can, yep. they're capable. And, you know, it just, it helps you make a deci- an educated decision and have a little bit more luck on your side that you're going to have a great hunting companion and family exactly. member. Yep. Yep. So cool. So during this business, now I know, again, I know you a little bit on a personal level, so I know that you have a German short hair as well. Were you running just Labradors and, and other retriever breeds at your facility or were you doing pointing breeds and retrievers? You know, um, pretty much any any if, if it had a, a head and a tail and four legs we, we probably trained it um i did a lot of pet dog training also bob uh because what would happen is, is my claim to fame was that uh west metro minneapolis st paul pretty affluent area and people would bring their retriever up for for work and he'd go back home uh the dog would go back home and after a couple of months with being us and then the neighbor next door would say you know where was your dog you know, where was he at? He was gone for a couple of months and now it's back. And God, it seems to be so well-mannered. What's that little device you got hanging around its neck? So, you know, pretty soon right. here was the, the neighbor's uh, uh, pet dog was coming up there, mixed breed dog. And so the only dogs I never really had any um, hands-on work with Bob was any kind of uh, bite dog work or uh, um, uh, scent dog work as far as, you know, uh, bomb dogs, uh, dope dogs, things of that nature. Even though one of the guys right. that used to work for me part-time would bring the local sheriff's department out here. He worked for the, uh, he was a canine uh, trainer over at the local prison, and they would bring those dogs out here. And I would help the trainers, the, the enforcement guys, with the electric collar training because they weren't very familiar with it. But then it was fun cool. to sit back and watch them do evidence searches and things of that nature. Um, so I never did any of that type of training, but I've been now I've been exposed to it with my work with Dogtra because I spent a couple days down at Mike Ritland's place and all those videos that we shot for Dogtra that you can find on YouTube and on the Dogtra.com website that we did with Mike Ritland, I was there and was part of that. And that's how I started that friendship with, with Mike, which was kind of interesting as well. But it was really fun to see Bite Dog work firsthand. Uh, but primarily, Bob, I, I was a retriever trainer, but I, I trained a lot of pet dogs. I trained pointing dogs as well. And I always had, uh, when I had the shooting preserve, we always kept one or two German short hairs uh, for the shooting preserve work. So... Uh, but mostly uh, Labrador Retrievers was my mainstay. Gotcha. Now, Pete, I got a question. This is Kevin so, here. I want to 
you mentioned earlier yep. that you had a chassis that was, uh, what'd you say, like first master hunter in, in your state? Tell me about uh, that in dog. The, in, back in, yeah, back in the day uh, when you ran NARA, and you still do, the title you get with NARA is MHR, whereas in the AKC okay. you get MH. So MHR stands for Master Hunting Retriever. It just does kind of the same title, uh, but they use the MHR title on it. And so my dog Jet was the uh, was the dog uh, was the first Master Hunting retri- uh, Master Hunting Retriever title dog in the state of Minnesota. Yep. So so tell me about um, that dog. Where'd you get that? Was, where'd you get that one? You know, it, it was interesting. I was working that con- that was my very first retriever, and I was working that construction job, Kevin, that I told you about. And there was a guy down the road. Um, he was a professor over at Ch- St. John's University. Had a litter of of uh, Chesapeake Bay Retriever puppies, and I was working on a on the rock picking crew and the pipe crew. And I saw this guy's cardboard sign out in front of his yard, and I stopped and talked to him one day. And and uh, literally, it was seventy five dollars for a, for a Chesapeake puppy. He had thirteen of them in the litter. No and way! So wow. guess who got number thirteen? Guess who got number thirteen out of the litter? Me and um, <laughs> and I took it, and I didn't know anything about training. Eventually, I went worked for Lorne Martin. That's uh, the person I told you about, and I had that dog Jet at that time. And and then uh, the hunt test program evolved, and I was kept training and working towards that, and got that dog titled uh, with the MHR title. So that's yeah, that so was cool. My first, my first dog, yeah, yep. And uh, so seventy five dollars. Um, I, I, is what I paid for the dog, but that was back in the in the seventies, you guys, the late uh, late 70s, probably seventy six, seventy seven, and um, didn't know anything about it. And what I thought was ironic about it, I got the very last pick in the litter. And you know, as I would sell litters of puppies over the years, people would put so much emphasis on on what what pick do they got in, in the litter. And I said, you know, you go out and you pick the best puppy that you can if you're comfortable with the breeder. You know, back then we didn't know anything about all the hereditary testing. I mean, my gosh, if you looked at all the hereditary testing that my dog Trey has done on him with hips, eyes, elbows, EIC, CNM, you mm-hmm. name it, it's all been DNA profiled. You know, back then we, we, we didn't know anything about it. And uh, you just went and got a dog and you trained it. So what I thought was ironic about it is I ended up with the 13th pick in the litter and turned it into a master hunting retriever. And I'm sure that all the other dogs were fine dogs in the litter. But a lot of it has to do with what you do with the dog when you get it home. You know, if you go buy an expensive dog and you don't train it, uh, then you might as well have gone down to the dog pound and saved a, saved a dog's life somewhere is the way I look at it. So it's it's two parts. It's finding a good quality dog, but as big a part is what you do with it, the environment, once you get it home. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't yeah. agree more. So tell me a little bit about the short hair you have right now. Uh, the current dog I have is, uh, Trip is the dog's name and he's actually 10 now. So I got him just the uh, first year that I, after I sold the business and, um, I just use him as a hunting dog. Uh, he's just a personal hunting dog and, um, he's 10 years old, still runs like the wind and yeah, held a lot of fun to hunt behind and points just rock solid and, and I uh, never ran him in any hunt tests. Um, bought him out of a national field champion down in Missouri and I sent my son Nate down to pick him up, drove down and picked him up. Nate was just, graduating from high school and going to go away to college. I think that was that summer. I gave him the keys to my truck and him and his girlfriend that time drove how many hours down South and, and picked this dog up and, and uh, brought him home and I've had him ever since. So yeah, he's a fun dog to hunt behind. And even at age 10, Bob, uh, you've seen pictures of him. He's predominantly white. I like the, I like the look of the white and liver 
short hairs and and they just and they're out of horseback field trial breeding is what i call them so they're big runners but i break them back for for foot hunting and and uh, just a lot of fun to hunt pheasants fine that's cool so tell us a little bit about your experience hunting and and memories you've had with your dogs out in the field well you know i just told this story uh i love the waterfall hunt and and now when a when a guy has more time to do it, you don't. It seems like I've I've got more time, but I don't hunt as much as what I what I really should. But the other thing for us locally here, our our waterfall flyway has really dried up, and I think it's moved even further west into North and South Dakota. So we don't get many opportunities to hunt ducks around here. Not like we did 10, 20, 30 years ago. We used to have just really good waterfall hunting. But uh, I just told this uh, story on another podcast here a couple of weeks back, and. And uh, we were out in North Dakota hunting, and and uh, we had uh, um, in layout blinds. And, and if you ever been to North Dakota, I mean, it's just as flat as as a pancake, Bob. And these fields are big, and it was a stubble field, and it was nasty, windy. I think a little snow was coming down, and and about five guys with us out in the field, and and we shot uh, our ducks. And uh, during the hunt, I I saw us uh, wingtip a bird, and it sailed a long ways out. I mean, this is this the bird probably went. 200 250 yards out and uh, i saw it drop and and fall and as we were uh hunting i kept watching this pickup truck driving real slow behind us on the on the section road and stopped and was glassing us i i'd assume and eventually when we were picking up it was the local uh, game warden he came driving out and he checked our plugs and licenses and all this stuff and i, I had my main dog back then was rex and he was a master hunter and and uh, i took rex and lined him up and, and sent him out across this uh, stubble field at 250 yards. And this dog handled like a dream, Bob. You've, you've been around these dogs. Where, I mean, he just runs straight as an arrow and just ears spin back. And he runs as long and hard until he heard that whistle. And he turned around and put his ass on the ground and looked for a direction. But as I'm lining him up, getting him ready to send, my buddy Greg standing behind me. And, and I hear the game warden say, what the hell is your buddy doing now? And Greg had hunted with me quite a bit. And he knew the drill. And he said, you just watch this. And. And so I lined Rex up and a handful of whistles later, I got him 250 yards out and he picks up this mallard and brings it in. And, and the uh, game warden walked over to me. He goes, you know, I've seen a lot of dog work in my day, but he said, that's like hunting with a guided missile. And, you know, and then I told him who I was, what I did and what the dog, more so about the dog than me. And uh, I said, you know, a guy could have walked out there and hunted it up or picked it up by hand because I had a pretty good idea. But to have a dog that would run a blind retrieve like that, that's a real conservation tool. And where all your training really pays off. And and I'd run many blinds like that with Rex in training and in hunting, but this game warden, his jaw just dropped. He said, I've never seen a dog handle at that distance. He said, you know, he had to be almost out a quarter mile. And I said, well, look at it's 200 yards or so. And he was just a little <laughs> speck out there by the time he picked up the bird. But those are, that's one of my more enjoyable stories that I've shared a couple different times over the years. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I have a similar story. Uh, I hunted with, we were in a flooded cornfield with some of the wealthiest people in South Carolina. And it was one of those things where, you know, I'm trying to make a name for myself down here and I get an opportunity to hunt with these guys. And they all have, like you said, the bar room dog where, mm-hmm. you know, best dog in the world. Well, all those best dogs in the world couldn't find all the ducks that their owner shot. And I bet we ran six or eight blind retrieves where guys in different blinds were yelling yeah over here 
you know, cast her over to the left, like tweet, you know, give her an over and boom, she picks it up and boom, she picks it up and boom, she picks it up. And she's all over this swamp, flooded cornfield area, just hammering these blinds. And I, the pride and uh, excitement and watching other people enjoy the hard work. I mean, it's not like you flip a switch and create that. It takes hours and days and months and years and a relationship and trust and all that stuff and discipline yep. on her end and my end to then be able to go and, and quote unquote, show it off. You know, it was yeah. so cool. It, well, you know, and a lot of people, quite honestly, Bob, uh, many outdoorsmen, many hunters, uh, have never seen that kind of dog work, you know, so they're just flabbergasted to see that to start with. And then the second thing is kind of like the game warden saying, you know, geez, how did you ever get the dog to do that? I said, well, you know, first you get him to do it at, 20 yards before you ever get him to do it at 200, you know? So, uh, you know, he just didn't all once walk up one day and be able to do a, a 200 plus yard, uh, landline with a handful of whistles. Uh, you know, that's all, you know, it's that whole building block theory that, you know, if I can't get him to do it at, uh, two feet, I'm not going to be able to get him at 20 feet and then 20 yards and then 200. So that's the other right. part of it that people don't understand. Like you said, the amount of, uh, effort uh, that goes into it Bob, to get a dog to that level. Absolutely. Absolutely. So how did, uh, how did your relationship with dog just start? Um, you know, it was kind of interesting, Bob. I, I did some, what, you know, you might refer to as pro staff work, um, uh, for a competitor's product. It was, uh, Tritronics was, which is what many of us used meant over the years as us old timers, so to speak. And, uh, Tritronics is now owned by the Garmin company. And so I was using their product and doing some um, work for them, event work, promotional work. And I was still, you know, obviously I had the business. And um, they they had this thing called Team Tritronics, and they dissolved that. Uh, and when they dissolved it, Bob, I I had known Doctor was on the market and making training collars. And we had a fairly large distributor up here that distributed our dog food. And, and back then I, I always fed Yukonuba dog food. and and still do. And, um, that dog food distributor also sold, uh, remote training collars. And so they brought some of the dog to product out and said, you know, we're thinking of carrying this line of product. And this was in about the year 2000, Bob. And they said, would you try it for us and let us know what you think? And, and I really liked it. Consequently, they dissolved team Tritronics and, and, um, I had an opportunity to get involved with, with, uh, with the dog truck company. And, and lo and behold, one Saturday afternoon at the kennel, my phone rings and it's a fella on the other end of the line. And I used to write for a conservation magazine, Bob called pheasants forever. I wrote the gun dog column for many years. And, uh, this individual had read one of my columns and, uh, in, in the pheasants forever magazine and called me and, and wanted to know if I knew about dog and wanted to know if I'd come work the shot show for him. And, uh, that was the start of it. And, uh, Mark was the individual's name that was running dog at the time. He's no longer with the company. And uh, I got to know Mark and uh, just built a relationship and and uh, a friendship, uh, which, uh, you know, no different than what you and I have developed over the years. And and um, consequently, uh, just stayed involved with the company, kept doing different things for him and got to know the owners of the company real well. Consequently, the uh, uh, the owner of the company passed away here about oh, six years ago and his sons run the company now. So that's um, Alex and, and James are their names and that's who I work for. Um, so that's, that's how I started out with them. Just doing some 
pro staff field ta- staff type work and just built a relationship with them, Bob. That's really neat. And then you went full time 10 years ago. So there was yeah. a mm-hmm. decent chunk of time of pro staff using, oh, yeah. et cetera. Yep. Yeah. To give you an now example, what? Bob, I've, I've, I've worked, uh, since that uh, SHOT Show in 2002, I've worked every SHOT Show for Dogtra since then. So I don't know what that comes out to be, uh, 18 of them. I worked this year's SHOT Show for Dogtra, so I've worked 18 straight SHOT Shows for them. Um, so, so yeah, I, uh, I, and now I do some of everything. I mean, I help them develop the product. I help them test the product. Um, I help them with their marketing work. Uh, just some, some of everything. And... Um, uh, now let's see what's what's happening in our country right now with with selling product. But you know we're we're in every company's going to be in for a a pretty uh, tough road to hoe here in in with the way things are going. So yeah, yeah, we're feeling some of the effects. Yeah. Um you know, unfortunately, with people out of work, um, mm-hmm. you know, some dogs are going to go home and then yep. come back when everything changes and then you know we we have a litter on the ground uh, and we have we you know we're very blessed we had 12 puppies Mm -hmm. and six of them have homes yep six do not and i'm i'm hopeful and pray that you know we'll get great families that are ready for them and are financially stable to be able to take that investment on but you know it's one of those things where uh, excess income or, you know, excess yeah. expenditure, people are being a little more careful. So I think we're all going to feel it for several more months, but yeah. I also know that, you know, the, the things that we're doing for people is, is their passion. And when it's their passion, it's a, you know, a little easier to spend money. It's not like putting new brakes on your car where you, you know you need it, but it's a real pain in the butt to go do because it's not fun or fancy. To get a puppy is, is exciting, and and then to train it and work with it and use the tools necessary. So yeah, it's hopefully... interesting times to, to say the least, and I, I think we're 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 going to see an effect in every almost every business, so to speak. But you know, in 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 regards to businesses, you know, I had an old old fellow that I bought our 360 acres from, and. You know, he used to, he was my mentor and Dewey Anors is his name. And Dewey was my mentor. He's still alive and uh, got it. Anytime I sat down and, and had an opportunity to visit with Dewey, which was quite often, he was turned into my, somebody I purchased a property from, from Bob. It was the first guy that ever paid me to train a dog. And uh, cool. he turned into a friend, a mentor. And my gosh, Bob, when I would sit down and listen to Dewey, he was highly successful in the manufacturing industry. Um, very successful man, very driven man. And it was like going to school every time I'd sit down and visit with him about um, business and how you run a business. And he, one of his favorite lines was, you got to have staying power. And hopefully we got a lot of companies out there. Hopefully, uh, I'm pretty sure Dogtra is a company that has a lot of staying power. And, uh, you know, that's what it's going to take to weather this storm, so to speak. And you're going to have some yeah. companies that, that won't weather it. I mean, let's face it. And I see it out. I'm, I live pretty rural, Bob. You've never been to my place. But, you know, nearest town to me is 10 miles away. And, and that's a, a city of a 1,000 people. So I live pretty rural. And, it's, you know, it's a farm community out this way. And I'm an uh, hour and a half from Minneapolis, St. Paul. And I'm about uh, 30 minutes from a city by the name of St. Cloud, which is 
probably 150,000 people. But there's little businesses uh, in these small towns that are going to get hurt by this, uh, you know, the restaurants and the bars and all that. And, and there's no question about that. But hopefully we got a lot of staying power. And I, I'm, I'm, I, I sleep pretty good at night knowing and talking to the owners at Dogtra. We've got a lot of staying power over there as well. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. So one thing I want to dive into a little bit is the Dogtra product. Um, back in the day, tell us a little bit about the evolution of the e-collar from probably let's start at a, the earliest, like Tritronics, where what was that original e-collar like? Well, you know, they were, uh, they were bigger units. They were, uh, you know, your, your handheld device was much bigger. The, the box that went on the dog was much bigger. Many of them had a uh, a physical antenna on the receiver also, and a lot of them had it uh, wound through the the uh, the uh, strap, uh, and then eventually they had a, a flexible antenna that would go on the came out of the side of the receiver, and then the transmitter, the handheld piece, uh, it was made out of uh, stock aluminum, and then the, the antenna was like a CBS convention. You know, you could put it up, and it would go about four or five feet in the air, you know, so you had this long <laughs> device that you were training the dog with. So the early days, they were quite primitive. And the biggest thing was that they were only one level of intensity back then, Bob, and they were high and they were hot. And so there was no flexibility. I mean, you either got everything or nothing. And eventually uh, they changed, uh, Tritronics changed some things on their product where you, uh, had these little plugs that you would put in for different intensity levels. So now I had a unit that had five levels of intensity, but the drawback there was if I needed a lower or higher level of intensity, I had to run out where the dog's at, switch the plug out, and then keep on training, and obviously the moment was lost. And then they right. changed those little plugs over to a contact point that you could turn on and off on the receiver. That's the piece the dog wears. And... um and again, you know, in order to change the intensity on it, I had to run out and unscrew that and put a new one on. Again, the moment was lost. And I don't know what year this evolved, Bob, but eventually remote training callers came up with a technology that you could change the intensity level on the handheld device, on the transmitter. And that was a game changer, in my opinion, and I think most trainers would agree with that. Now I can change the amount of stimulation that I want to apply to the dog in a given situation right at my fingertip, not have to run out and right. change something uh, at, at the dog. So that was probably the biggest advancement that uh, was made in, in the history of the remote training caller. And at the point where I, all the, all the dog tra product that came, uh, which was probably in the mid to late nineties, Bob, all those units already had that technology in them. So we never had any training callers where you had to change a plug or a contact in the, um, in the receiver. They all had it uh, just like they do now, a dial up on top of the transmitter. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I think, you know, to, to give everybody a, just to touch on it again, real quick is what he's saying. If you had to put it into terms, you, you said it was real hot on an edge RT, you got a high eight. Do you think it just ran on a high eight all the time or was it a five? Yeah. Yeah, no, it was, it was probably about the, those old units were, were, were super powerful, Bob. So they probably were comparable to a, a level eight on, on our high output units. Yeah. Wow. And, and uh, again, mm -hmm. I think on a given day, week, month, 
I don't know if I really ever touch a high eight ever. I mean, it's got to be a big dog, big infraction, one who knows what the is being asked of them and repeat it. I mean, it's just not frequent where you got to touch a dog on that kind of intensity. You know, we find you know, every trainer's different. Yeah, I agree True. with you. Every trainer is different. And, um, you know, some, some use a higher level, some use a medium, some, some use a very low level. Um, it just, it just varies. It seems like from one individual to the next. Um, so, but, yeah, but those motor units were very powerful. Yep. So the whole point now to an e-collar is we can fine-tune our stimulation. So the correction we're giving a dog can be a light little bump to, oh, crap. Mm-hmm. And, yep. and the infraction and the amount of times and all that stuff, we can fine-tune it so that the dog's getting what it needs to correct the behavior to teach. Exactly. Tool. And, and, and not putting any excessive amount of pressure on the dog. Um, and one of the things that I've said many, many times over as I visit with people or get interviewed about the remote training collar bomb is I, I'll say this. Uh, I never met a dog, any dog, that couldn't reap the benefit of some remote training collar work. You've used it enough in your years now. You've seen you know, I hate to even say this, but it's almost like a magic wand. It's it's a great device for reaching out and reinforcing commands uh, at a distance with a dog, and the dog respects you. And and again, it's like any tool. It, it it's it, there's good ways to use it. There's bad ways to use it. There's diff- many different ways to to use it. You know, it's the old you know. There's more than one way to skin that cat, as we say. You know, so there's many different ways that you can use a remote training collar on a dog. Um, I personally like a little bit lower to medium level. I'm probably like you in that I, every once in a while, I maybe use a fairly high level, but you got to read the dog. You got to know what, what, if the dog can handle that amount of correction or reinforcement. So, um, but with the, the technology that we have today, with the, with the dialing of the stimulation at your fingertip and have the ability to go to that ultra low setting, you know, back in the day, Bob, if you had dogs like that, that couldn't, couldn't handle that high output. Well, they just didn't get, they didn't get the e-collar used on uh, whereas nowadays, uh, like I said, I've never, I never met one dog that I could not e collar train. I had to use a, the real, a real light sensation on them, um, but that didn't mean that, that I didn't use it at all. So, and then, and, you know, you got to mix in uh, a fair amount of positive reinforcement as well. So, um, sure. yeah, an e collar trained dog, until people see it, um, uh, a trainer really that knows what the hell they're doing with a remote training collar. Uh, most of them have no idea uh, the value of it. Right. No, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And I think, you know, the, the sad part, Pete, is, you know, you, you said it real briefly that if a dog couldn't handle that high eight, it, it just was trained without it. I probably would err on the side that I doubt that. I bet they used it, yeah. realized that this dog wasn't going to be worth a, a damn and would send it home and say, sorry, your dog yeah. ruined. It's fried up and collar, yeah. you know, abused yeah. with the collar, if you will. Yep. And the dog's never going to hunt. You're done. Yep. And the dog's yep. ruined. So yep. a, lot, a lot of dogs back in the day were washed out and sent home because they couldn't handle the pressure. Now we can adjust the pressure to such a fine level 
that you can take a very, very gentle dog and like you said, and still use a collar and, and reach out and give a stimulation exactly. that yep. the dog will respond and then be rewarded with X and learn how to turn that pressure off. I agree 100%. That's, and that's why the, you know, the ability to dial these units down to a very low level and have the ability to change that level at your fingertips on the fly, right when, you know, timing is very crucial when you're training a dog, you know that. And so to be able to implement that reinforcement of a command and the level you want and adjust it right at your fingertips, that's really a, a, a very valuable part of the remote training collar. So, um, yeah, I trained a lot of, a lot of sensitive dogs with it over the years. And I, uh, I just told this story here on, uh, on another podcast. I said, you know, people seem to think that the bigger the dog, the more, the higher the threshold it is for the static electricity, which is how a training collar works. And static electricity is basically shuffle your feet across a dry carpet and go ground your, your uh, hand to a or finger to a doorknob and you have that little arc, you get that static electricity. And uh, what I was telling in the story, I said, you know, one of the uh, dogs that had the highest threshold for static electricity I ever ran into, I was training a, um, a uh, Labrador retriever for a customer and he had a little Jack Russell Terrier and the Jack Russell Terrier, uh, the dog's name was Murph, and this this dog was just hell on wheels. And uh, on the highest level, you had to have your training collar set. And this dog wasn't 12 pounds <laughs> dripping no wet. Yeah, and so <laughs> you know, a lot of people think that the bigger the, bigger the dog, the, the more robust uh, the personality is going to be. And I, I didn't ever – you can't equate that. You know that in the dogs you train. I mean, some of the dogs that you take out of the box and you're going to start working with and – their first experience with a remote training call and you think they're really going to be a, a handful Bob. And as it turns out, they, they might have a fairly low threshold. So you don't know with any dog until you get started with it. And that's, again, I tell people this all the time. You know, that's why we start with a fairly low level and work our way up as opposed to Absolutely. starting on a high level and working your way down. That's just my opinion. And there's other trainers out there that probably know a hell of a lot more about use of the electric training caller would, would say, Hey, that's not how I do it. But you know, there's an old saying, Bob, and it's if you put three dog trainers in a room, there's only one thing that two of them can agree on. You know what that is? That the other the one's third wrong. guy's wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, lots of different ways to train a dog. Um, I've said this a lot of different times. I've had pretty good success using the methods that I've developed and learned from different people. And I've gone to the Mike Lardy seminars and Andy Attar. Spent a lot of time with my buddy Pat Nolan, uh, out in uh, Maryland, and these guys know a lot, and gals that know a lot about training callers. And so you just pick up little bits and pieces over the years and kind of meld them all together and, and, uh, and develop your own way of using the training caller. But that's just the way I've used it. I like to use a fairly low level and work my way up until I find that dog's comfort or uncomfort level, so to speak. Yeah, I, I agree. Do you mind if we take a second and, and talk about that a little bit? when you're introducing a collar to a brand new dog, like I, we had a guy come today. He, I've got a water tank issue on my trailer. He, he's a handyman. He's got a Labrador retriever and mm-hmm. you know, he saw me using a collar and he's like, Oh man, best invention ever. I just zapped my dog and man, he yeah. glued to my hip. He won't leave me the rest of the day. And I'm just sitting yeah, there. What happens if you're going to pheasant hunt with him? <laughs> Yeah, I go, I'm just thinking like, oh man, you know, I didn't even get into it because why? Yeah. But, yeah, but but that's not how we do it. That's not the point of an e-collar. 
talk to me and our listeners a little bit about introducing a collar to a dog. Well, my theory uh, is is that the remote training collar is used to reinforce commands the dog already knows. So <clears throat> first, that dog has to be taught the commands. And really, my, my process is probably very similar to yours and the other trainers that you've been around, Rhett Riddle and the rest of them. Three-step process. Come to me, go stationary, go away from me. I want that dog to be able to know to come when he's called, go, go to a sit position or a standing stay if it's a pointer or a wool position, and go away from me into a crate, a kennel, the back of a truck, or into a boat. Three-step process. And then I take the training collar and I reinforce each one of those on a low level with the dog on a rope. So really that's what uh, what we call collar conditioning. Yeah, but first I obedience train the, the dog to start with. So that transition into the e-collar is, is uh, much smoother and much easier if, in my opinion, if the dog has been obedience trained first. Now, there's trainers out there that just take the the uh, remote training collar and they put it on the dog and, and train him one bit and his life. And they just start, as my old buddy Pat Nolan would say, they start thumping him around and with the training right. collar. I, I personally don't do it that way. But, again, I'm sure there's individuals, guys and gals out there that have great luck with it. But I personally like to obedience train the dog first, then use the training collar on him. I, I agree, too. And again, to touch, a, this is big. I'm big on teaching people, right? So to slow it down for a second, he, Pete, and myself, and a lot of our good friends we've had on here, we're teaching these commands. We're teaching sit. We're teaching heal. We're teaching here with treats. We're waiting until the dog is of a certain age. Pete, what's your recommendation on age for starting collar conditioning? Well, I always took a lot of dogs for training at about six months of age. And, and the reason I did that, uh, I wanted the dog with the owners so they would bond with the owner to start with, Bob. And then the other thing is, is with the whole teething process. Typically at six months of age, their puppy teeth are out. And so that's when normally I would take them, uh, when I had the business, I'd take them at about six months of age and, and start them on the obedience and the gun and birds and, and then the collar conditioning followed that. But I'll be honest yeah. with you, the, my current dog, Trey, uh, I started him on, uh, he was a leftover puppy out of a litter also, and uh, had him shipped here from uh, Utah. I think he was about 10 weeks old when I got him. I did uh, some obedience training with him to start with, and I saw his trainability level and how he reacted. And I, I put the small dog for IQ on him. One of the, heck, he probably wasn't even 15, 16 weeks old, and I started collar conditioning that dog when he was that age. Um, but I also like to think I know what the hell I'm doing and just using a lot stimulation yeah. with it. And I had him going on the place boards and into his crate and I still got those videos around somewhere. I had a little fart run around, he'd hop up here. And again, he was just, just the uncomfortable feeling of the remote training collar. And, and I look at it this way, Bob, I treat it as, as escape training. And so I give him a command. He feels that, that stimulation. And, and when, when I, let's say the recall command. And so he hears the command, he feels the sensation. Once he starts to commit to the command, the sensation goes away and the positive reinforcement comes. Same way with going up right. onto a place board. And so uh, I trained him with a remote training collar at a very young young age. I know my buddy Pat Nolan um, did that. I, I remember a story from many years ago, a guy that I had an opportunity to spend a couple afternoons with here a couple years ago, Danny Farmer. And I think Danny started electric training a dog that they, dog's name was Vinwoods Takes a Lickin'. And I think that dog's call name was, uh, Vinwoods Takes a Lickin'. Timex was the dog's call name. 
I think I remember hearing a story that Danny Farmer started collar conditioning that dog way before he was six months of age. And um, so a lot of it has to do with, with uh, the, the person that's doing the training, Bob. I, I agree. I think erring on the side of the general population, six months is a good age to say because it gives yep. those people eight weeks, you know, two months old to six months old to build good habits yep. and a little obedience and some treat training and all that jazz. Yep. And then at six months old, the dog has some general understanding of what's being asked yep. of it. And then you can do it. Um, yep. Some of my young puppies that I've personally owned and done all that stuff with, I've done it earlier as well and had no negative recourse. But again, I've done it hundreds of times. Yep. So you can figure the situation out a little easier than the first timer. Um, and then again, to double back real quick as well is we work from a low level stimulation. Like if you've got a dial, like Kevin and I, or, you know, Kevin has, and I sell to everybody the 1900 S that's yep. a zero to 127 unit. So you take that dial and you start dialing it from zero to five to 10 to 15 to 20 to 25 to 30 to 31. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're going from 17 to 19 to 20 and you're just fine tuning it all the way until you're starting to get a response and you feel where that dog starts feeling it. Some dogs are 15, some dogs are 20, some dogs are 25. I don't know, but you go from, you start low you don't want to start at 25 you want to start at five and i mean i've never met a dog that feels a five but out of 127 but you know you just start low and tweak it up as you go and find where that i call it their normal working level so there's a low end and a high end and then there's a a low to medium area where it's their normal working level you get a change in behavior, you get the desired response and it turns pressure off and everybody's happy. Yep. Well, and, and on that particular unit, the 1900S, uh, Bob, that has what we call a rheostat. So what I explained to, explain to people is that the rheostat is like a volume knob on your radio. There's no pre-programmed click, 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 clicks. Uh, it's a smooth increase, decrease to 127. So we get a, a lot of flexibility. Now, some trainers that have select like selector styles, click one, click two, click three. We make some units like that, like our RT unit. Personally, I like the 1900S. I like that smaller handheld transmitter. It's a good all good around all around training collar. It's a good hunting collar also. You know, it's got the smaller uh, transmitter, so I can drop it in my waiter pouch. And I don't have the antenna sticking under my chin when I'm, you know, out there in the, in the uh, in the blind. And so that's our most popular large breed training collar. We sell more of those than, than anything combined. And it's just a good all around hunting collar and, and training collar. And it's a high output unit also. So, and fully waterproof. That's the other thing people say, well, geez, you know, I've got, I got to have waterproof, got a waterproof unit. And almost every unit we make nowadays in, in our, our doctor line, even the handheld transmitters waterproof. So right. that that's on that, that unit that you're describing there, the 1900S, that's our, that's our flagship unit. That's our, that is our main seller. Yeah. And I know, I mean, I know why it's just, it's durable, the battery life, the consistency of the stimulation. Now that's all right. Now that I just said that word, it made me come back to it. One of the things that I love about Dogtra 
versus some of the other brands that I know other people use and we've tried is consistency. If I've got a dog working on a 30 and I know 30 is that dog's normal working level, when I push that button, that button needs to work at the time I push it for the amount of time I hold that button down and at the level I need it to be at. It's not low or high or at 70 yards, it's not as hard and at 20 yards, it's tougher. I mean, it needs to be where it's at when I say it's at. And I think, I don't think, I know, I'm confident that that's what I get from a product when I'm using my dog to products. Yeah. And then I guess I want you to speak to it, but I already kind of did. But, you know, as far as doctor goes, like that kind of quality matters. And it, when you're stimulating and, and giving a correction, your correction can't be too harsh if it's just a faint infraction. It's got to be right. And so right. talk to me about that stimulation and the consistency and how you guys achieve that. Yeah, well, Ed, you you hit the nail on the head. Consistency with the training collar is is real important. Now, there are a lot of factors that can come into play. Also, um, you know, people say uh, they might I might get a call from customer service and they'll say, um, "This guy says his unit or gal says his unit isn't working right. Can you call him?" So I call him and and I'll talk to him. And the conversation might go something like this: "Bob, well, it's not working right." And I'll first thing I'll say is, "How do you know it's not working right?" Well, what do you mean? And I said, you know, it's not working right because of the reaction of the dog. You take it off, put a test light on it, or you put it in your hand or wrist and felt the stimulation yourself. So that's always the, the key part of it that I start with is because there's so many factors. And, and you know this, Bob, you know what, what your working level, let's say on a dog with no distractions might be at level 30. When you introduce a distraction, level 30 probably isn't going to get a, be the, the required amount to get the dog's attention. You're, anytime you got a distraction, you're probably going to need a stronger reinforcement. Not to have people this, you know, could try to getting your kid to take the garbage out when the TV's on, you know, turn the TV off and take away the distraction. You don't have to use as much reinforcement. So uh, there's many things that come into play with consistency of stimulation that people aren't aware of. Yeah, you can have a unit that may be inconsistent because of a weak battery or a low battery or an antenna issue. Um, or the other thing that I run into a lot, Bob, is go ahead and take one of these units and go ahead and try using it and grab the the antenna on it sometime. And you kill the damn signal off on it. Have you ever done that? I have, yeah. Yeah. And so you're touching the antenna. If you've got the unit, uh, I just dealt with a guy the, uh, the other day that said, my unit's not working properly. Uh, and I said to him, well, where is the unit when it's not working? He said, well, I've got it clipped to my, to my, my, uh, pocket. And I said, so I'm going to say that the antenna is touching your side of your, your body. He said, oh, definitely. And I said, well, take it off and try it without that. Just put it in your hand and, uh, and, and use it that way for a while. And then call me back and let me know if it's, if that was the problem. And he called back and he said, yeah, the, these units all come with a belt clip and people clip them to their belt you should really take it off of your belt or off your pocket when you start using it. He was pushing the buttons while it was still fastened to his pocket. Unfortunately, the antenna was touching the side of his, his waist. So that's right. uh, uh, something to be aware of in regards to the, you know, the product durability. Uh, Dr. owns their own factories and our, our electronics are all made over in Korea. Um, some of our parts, uh, come right out of the out of the states here like all of our strapping uh all american made but our guts uh are made over in seoul korea 
And so we own those plants. We don't uh, contract out with different plants to make our product. We own them. Our people have been there for years. And so that's a big part of getting a quality product is that you own your own uh, your own factories and your products being made there by your people and you've got better oversight. Uh, then the other right. thing, and I, I run into this on, a, on uh, uh, when I've been out in California, all those units, when they come in, they're all taken out of their boxes and they're put on something called an oscilloscope out there and they're retested box. So our units are tested out when they come out of the factory, they're tested in California and then they get sold and shipped off to somebody. So to have one of our units not work right out of the box is almost unheard of. Stuff can happen. Just, you know, you could have something happen with a, uh, in the guts of the unit where it, in, in, uh, it wasn't fastened right. And, and in the shipping process to the, to the consumer, it, you know, something came loose, but boy, that has happened so rarely. It's not even funny. So the way we, the way our, the place that our product is made and also the way we test them before we ship them out to the consumer are the reasons why we have very few breakage right out of the box. It's almost unheard of, Bob. Yeah, I would say the, you know, the, I, I, I don't know. I guess I don't really know how many units I sell a year, but it's hundreds, you know, maybe 10 come back with an issue. So it's like a mini, mini percentage and it's usually human error. Yeah. And I, and I, the customers for me, another major part of why I've been with doctor for so long is customer service and the people I can make a phone call to or have my clients and people who buy them from me call and how they're treated when they call means a lot. Yeah, and and to that point, Bob, there's a, a lot of good product for uh, in in the remote training caller world nowadays. There, there's good product out there. I would never say anything bad about our competitors. I like the fact that there's other companies out there. They they push us to be better in a lot of different ways in in the manufacturing, in quality, uh, being intuitive, and also in pricing. You know, product uh, training callers, Bob are about half the price of what they were uh, 25 years ago. Uh, So like a lot of technology, everything has come down in price. And so I think that's all good. And and another big part of, of, uh, of a business is, is you can have good product. It can be reliable, but guess what, Bob, the reality is this stuff breaks. And when you see the amount of abuse, this product takes getting drugged through the swamps and you see it every day, it's amazing it lasts as long as it does, but they eventually everything breaks and, and got to either be replaced or repaired. And that's where your customer service and your repair comes in. And, and do you warranty it? Um, I mean, if I told you some of the, the horror stories I've, I've uh, had to deal with Bob and, and some of the customer service issues that uh, people literally have destroyed these units on their own and they want them warranted. And, um, uh, and, and so that's a, a, and most of the time we, we treat each one of them as an individual, but that's where your, your customer service really comes into play is when you do have a problem. I mean, that's, that's really important. I think besides making a good quality product. Sure. So I've got a, a funny story as far as quality goes. So when I used to work for RET, I had, I had an IGRT and I, I had lost the remote just straight up lost it. You know, it's classic Bob, no idea where it went. So I was using an arc for 
probably six to eight weeks. I mean, it was a while. I'm just using my arc, using my arc. And I had a, 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 there was a client there and he and Rhett were riding around on the golf cart and they found my remote. On the unit. In, yeah. It was just laying in the grass. Now, in that amount of time, South Carolina had had monsoons. I mean, so much torrential rain, ponds were destroyed because the, the yep. dams were being blown out. I mean, it was just uh, forever rain every single day. And so this re- remote on the Edge RT was out in this the entire time. I plugged it in, charged it up, and started using it again. And I had had that until about six months ago. And that was five yeah. years ago. I, I I had a guy send me a picture and a little story. And we actually have it. Uh, it's been a couple of years ago now. So it's somewhere buried in our Darktra Facebook page. Um, he had lost his uh, his training collar off of his dog. It was a Darktra unit. And um, it was out in uh, in a field somewhere. And it was in CRP. And they did a controlled burn on the CRP land. And so um, his unit got burnt. And he actually found it after the burn laying out there. And here it was. Had the, the parts of the collar uh, were melted on it. The receiver box was a little bit scorched. He took it home and charged it. He sent us a picture. And he said, I need a new strap. Can you get me one? <laughs> and that picture of that unit is, is on our dog truck uh, Facebook page somewhere. It's been about three years but that's a testament to, you know, if you've ever done a, and I've done some control burns here on our CRP land. And if you ever, I mean, that stuff's hot when it goes through. And I was pretty amazed that it did not melt anything in the, in the guts. I would assume that it would have done something to the electronics. Um, but the, the, uh, the strap was, was uh, burnt in places and the box was scorched a little, but uh, probably working to this day yet. Bob. So I see stories That's like awesome. that on a regular basis, and it's kind of fun to see them and and uh, and to hear yeah. about them. Yeah, that's unbelievable. So we we touched on it. What is your number one favorite collar to use? Um, you know, when I when I'm training or hunting, Bob, I um, uh, I've got some of everything uh, of doctors. I got stuff that I tested uh, prototypes that never came on the market that are hanging here and. I mean, there's a reason uh, Alex, one of the the owners, calls it Dog to North is my place. But um, when I'm when I'm out working a dog, I like the 1900s. I do have a couple of the RT units here, which I was uh, involved in designing and, and building that unit for Dog Trail, which is kind of near and dear to me. And Trey, my my dog, was on the box cover for a while. I like that yep. unit, but I'm I'm a fan of the wrist that I like the 1900. And but the unit that I'm using right now, Bob, is uh, when I'm, I do a lot of upland hunting and I love our beeper units. That's a, a unit that's called a T and B dual. So I have the ability to not only, uh, control the dog with, a with reinforced commands with the, with the static electricity on the unit, but it's got a beeper unit on the, on the dog collar. And so when that dog's out hunting that, uh, heavy CRP land, I can beep it and I know which direction he's gone off. And if I've got it on my pointer and I want to use the run point modes, so it'll beep every, uh, five seconds when the dog is, uh, working and when it goes on point, it goes to every two second increments. Uh, if you want to put it on a pointing dog, if you don't, if you, I use it on my retrievers all the time because they're in heavy cover and I just use the locate only mode on it. I beep them and I know that they've gone off this way and I got to follow them and keep them within gun range. 
So gotcha. uh, a couple of units that I, I really, and they just came out with this, uh, it's an updated version of our TNB. It's called a TNB dual and it's got two uh, stimulation dials on the top of it. If you ever look, so if you've got two dogs out at the same time, it's like having two transmitters in one Bob. And if you ever look at most two dog units, you either got to toggle or go or switch a dial when you go from dog one to dog two, and you've only got right. one stimulation dial. So wherever you left that stimulation dial is where, where the other dog is going to receive it unless you adjust it. With this particular unit, you can adjust one at a low and one at a high. And when you push the orange buttons, it goes with the orange one and the black green go with the black green collar strapped unit. So it's virtually having two transmitters and one less error for the dog, one dog to get the stimulation where it doesn't deserve. Uh, so that's the TNB dual. And then we make another unit called a 3500X that also has that. And that's actually the training collar I'm using quite a bit right now. Uh, it doesn't have the beeper on it, but I really like it. It's got that two dog, that dual control up on top. And I really like it. So, um, those I've got some of everything. Um, I'm just collar conditioning a new, uh, puppy and he's not very old. He's only about 14 weeks old. And I've got our, what we call our IQ mini on him. And I just started with him. Um, cool. and, and so I got some of everything, but those are my favorites, the 1900 S and, and those two other units, the 3500 X and the TNB dual are just really good units. I've never used a TMB, so I'll have to do that. I'll have to get one for uh, grouse season 2020 uh, for for Kevin and I both have English setters. So it's kind of like yep. your dog, your, your German short hair. We have our retrievers that hunt and hunt test and compete, yep. and then we both have English setters that are our house dog, meat dog, you know, go yep. out and hunt. Uh, so we'll have to we'll have to test those out as well. But my go Bob, until you've used one of those T and B units, you'll you'll never you'll never hunt any upland game again with a dog without without a beeper on it. Seriously, I, I yeah, just can't. I, I don't know uh, I, if I take my retrievers out and I'm pheasant hunting, uh, they've got that beeper unit on them. It's just uh, oh. uh, unbelievable how fast they can get lost in the cover. And my switchgrass is real thick here. I mean, it can be 10 feet away from me, Bob, and I, you can't see them anymore. And all I got to right. do is tap that beeper a couple times, and I know where they're at. So, yeah, it's, that's, right. until you've hunted with a beeper unit, you, you don't know what you're missing with, with upland hunting. Yeah, no, I think at, there's been plenty of times in the grouse woods where, you know, you don't hear anything, you don't know where they went, and they're probably right. on point. You regretfully you can't call them to you because if they're yep. on point you want a don't want to call them off point and b they're probably not going to come off point so right you know you you got to go and dig and find them so yeah, yeah I definitely if you got a bell will. on them the bell quits ringing once they go on point so um, yeah the nice part about exactly. the beeper is you can give it a couple beeps and you know which which direction to head yeah that's um absolutely those are really add to the hunt when you're upland hunting. And I like the fact that you don't have to have a beeping all the time. You can have it be yeah. nice and quiet and listen to the woods and yep. listen to the dog working. Yep. And then, okay, where, how far is it? Beep. Okay. Okay. It's on point. Yep. Beep. Yeah. That seems pretty awesome. We're going to, Kevin, you and I are going to upgrade buddy. Yep. Yeah. Don't yeah, twist my arm. That feature is called the locate only. You just tap the locate. Anytime you tap locate, it's going to beep for you. Or you can put it into those run point modes. Personally, I just use the locate because I don't want to listen to that beeping all the time. And if dog's not within eyesight of me, I, I don't need it beeping. 
and then if I get into spooky birds, um, you know, I don't, I don't need a lot of extra noise when I'm out there. Yeah, I agree. I, I would prefer to have it be silent until necessary. Um, so that's cool that it's got that feature. Now for me, I've used, I think I've used probably most of the dog products down to the house dog models. Um, like the 200 B I think was one of them. Yeah, I don't know if that's discontinued now. Yep. I've used that a lot. Okay. All right. So I use that a lot on smaller breed obedience dogs. Um, but, but for me, the listener out there, 90% of you would be pleased with the 1900 S it's, capable of so many levels it's 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 got everything you need and more it's priced right like i I get so frustrated when people call me to train their dog and they're like oh i already bought a collar do i need a new one i'm like here's the deal maybe maybe not bring it with you and when i see it i can tell that they bought it at tractor supply for (laughs) 49.99 And we throw that sucker out. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Throw that thing out. Yeah, there's a piece of junk, but it's also not $600. So it's priced right where it's affordable, but you're getting one of the best quality products out there. Exactly. For, you know, one of of, of the things I've seen, Bob, and all of us are becoming Amazon shoppers. And go take right. a look on Amazon sometime, and all those paid ads, those are almost all of those uh, $30, 40 $50 Chinese uh, knockoffs. And I don't even know who makes them. Um, there's no – it's not one of the major players in the in the e-collar industry. Uh, but all those that are – that you're seeing those paid ads for, uh, those are all those, those uh, shitty uh, $50, $40 units, and I, I would not recommend – Buy a good brand name product. I mean, um, those, that's where I see a lot of that stuff being sold is on Amazon, uh, to be honest with you. Right. I agree with you. And I, I, it goes back to the earlier conversation of consistency. When I give a correction, I need it to be at the stimulation level. I told it to be at. And at the time, I tell it to be there. And quality if you drop it on the ground it's not going to break and uh, waterproof all that jazz really plays a role in the unit and so you know before we jump into that real quick you know the second product that i use every single day is the edge rt and i know there's other higher end like professional dog trainer units that you guys have um so maybe you can touch on some of the new ones, like the new Edge. But for me, this I've been using it for five years, six years now, and it it fits. Every I know everything. Every I need to be so quick on my correction that I don't fumble. I dial, I dial back. I can touch this, I can touch that, and I'm making the stimulation when I need it, how I need it. And so for me, everyday use, the Edge RT is what I use for hunting, for obedience, for the average person, it's the 1900S. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the professional trainers, Bob, are using that RT 
unit. And, and when we developed that, oh gosh, probably close to 10 years ago, uh, we made this product called the Edge uh, unit. And then uh, we wanted this, what we call our combination button. So for each level, you get a low, medium, and a high. And you got eight levels of stimulation. For each one of those, you got three levels within it. And then you got momentary and constant buttons also. So when we developed right. that product almost 10 years ago, we patterned it after a competitor's unit that we wanted that was very popular. And that unit has been extremely popular for us. And it's what a lot of the professionals do use, the RT unit. And, and the reason we call it the Edge RT was it's very popular with the retriever trainer. So that's what the RT stands for, just so you know. And um, oh, cool. so as we're develop yes, as we were developing this product and Alex was up at my place uh, in Minnesota here and we were, he had some of the technicians with him and we we're bringing some prototypes out, and, you know, and you just, you can't, you can't just keep calling it, well, this unit or that unit. And I, I said to him the one day, I said, well, that's, I'm just going to call it the RT. And he said, why are you calling it the RT? I said, because this is going to be popular with the retriever trainers. And so we, we, as we were developing this unit and Alex and I would have conversations and he'd call me and, and I'd say, well, you got any update on the RT? And he said to me, yeah, that name's really going to stick. And I said, well, we've got to call it something. And that's how the, the name RT got stuck to that unit was through one of the owners, Alex and myself's conversation. And, and, um, and it has been really popular. It's not our top selling unit. Uh, our 1900 S is, uh, but it's, it's our, our unit that a lot of professionals use like yourself. And then when the dog goes home for training, the individual looks at, uh, you know, the bigger, that bigger transmitter and says, you know, for what I'm doing, I need something with a smaller transmitter with it. I don't need that bigger pro style, uh, transmitter. And a lot of them end up buying the, the 1900 S. So it's kind of a, a the RT is kind of our, our gateway, you know, so to speak, uh, unit to the 1900 S through the pros. And, you know, my gosh, to see how popular that unit has become, Bob, when I go and meet with the trainers down at the master national and go out in the field with these people before the event. And I stop in and see if they need any batteries, antennas, you know, just doing goodwill stuff. It's really phenomenal to see uh, how many people are using that particular unit. And a lot of the very successful uh, professionals are using that. Absolutely. Now, can you quickly tell us about the, the intense, Ah, man, I know I can picture it, but I can't describe it. But it's like the IQ eight nine zero test that you do on your units for waterproofing and durability. Oh, yeah, and I, I can't think of what that's called either. Um, <laughs> you know, basically what it does is, I mean, that's a certification that's done on these units. You can't just throw that label on it, Bob. And it's actually on the on the, like the 1900 S uh, there's a, I think we've got a video and some other information. You caught me on that one. I can't think of if you had asked me that question about a couple of years ago, I could have rattled off what that was, or I could look it up, but it basically means that that unit can withstand being underwater at this depth for this amount of time is what it amounts to. And uh, to be certified for that. And it's XP something or other is what it's called, Bob. I'd have to look it up. Uh, no, nah, you don't have to my computer. But that's you what that means, to... and a lot of units are that way nowadays, just so you know. Good, good. Yeah, I saw the videos, and it's like you're pressure washing it, you're dunking yeah. it underwater, yeah, you're yep. this, yep. you're smashing it, and it still yep. works. And, and yep. again, the abuse we put these units through, hunting, training, everyday yep. life, you know, they've got to withstand and, and be yep. able to still tick. Yep. So, 
That means and we a lot tackle a lot of technology in them nowadays, Bob. And, you know, it's that old classic deal. You know, the more technology you, you pack in them, the more things that that can go wrong. And and but that's just the way society is nowadays. I mean, just I, I look at look at your cell phone and all the different things it can do for you nowadays. And the the, the training collars. You know, we got momentary, we got constant, we've got a LCD screen, we got a pager vibration in it. You know, and and so it really is basically a little radio transmitter is what it is. You know, sending signal back and forth to the to the to the unit. And so, and you just have to build it so it can withstand all the the rigors. You know, of being dropped and drug around and in the water and in the snow and and in the heat. You know, look what you guys uh, when you're down south the the extreme heat that these these units got to be out in. So it takes a pretty durable unit to to uh, withstand all that. Absolutely, Pete. Thank you so much for being a part of our show. We really enjoyed chatting with you. Our friendship and relationship with you and Dogtra means the world to us. And so thank you for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Dogtra, you can check them out on Facebook. You can check them out on Instagram. It's Dogtra Official. You can check out their website. It's just www.dogtra.com. If you have questions about certain units, you can shoot me a direct message on at Lone Duck on Instagram, and I'd be happy to help you through the process, help you through collar conditioning your dog. We've got podcasts about collar conditioning, and I hope you learned a lot about collar conditioning via this podcast. So, Pete, thank you for being with us, and until next week, thank you all for tuning in. Hey, do me a solid. If you enjoy the show, if you enjoy our Instagram, if we've helped you at all, join patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. If you do it before September of 2023, you're going to enter to win a hunt with me and Kevin and a bunch of other Patreon members down in Missouri. We're going to smack some ducks, have some fun, do a seminar with our dogs and have a great time. But jump into patreon.com forward slash lone duck outfitters. Links in the description and join the community that helps me help you help your dog. Hey listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.